folks, this is Mark Davis coming at you from Migrant Rounds. I'm going to jump right into the next topic on pulmonary edema. Pulmonary edema is an emergency that demands immediate medical attention. Pulmonary edema is broadly classified into cardiogenic due to increased hydrostatic pressure or non-cardiogenic due to increased microvascular permeability. However, it is common for critically ill patients to present with pulmonary edema arising from a combination of cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic etiologies. Pulmonary edema is a major health problem accounting for approximately 10% of ICU admissions and associated with an estimated acute hospital mortality of approximately 10 to 25% and one-year mortalities exceeding 40%. Increased hydrostatic pressure in the pulmonary capillaries results in increased transvascular fluid filtration and is most often caused by volume overload or impaired left ventricular function, resulting in elevated pulmonary vascular pressures. Mild elevations of left atrial pressure reflected by pulmonary capillary wedge pressures of 180 over 25 millimeters of mercury cause edema formation in the perimicrovascular and peribronchovascular interstitial space. As left atrial pressure rises further, reflected by a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure greater than 25 millimeters of mercury, the capacitance of the lymphatics and interstitial space is exceeded, which is approximately 500 ml, and fluid overwhelms the lung epithelial barrier, flooding the alveoli with protein-poor fluid. Hypoxemia results clinically due to the development of alveolar fluid accumulation, destabilization of alveolar units by way of impaired surfactant function, and consequent ventilation-perfusion mismatching. Non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema refers to any condition promoting abnormal increases in the vascular permeability of the lung, thereby promoting greater fluid and protein flux into the lung interstitial space and air spaces. In terms of the Starling equation, pulmonary vascular damage equates with an increase in the filtration coefficient and an increase in the protein osmotic pressure in the lung interstitial space, both of which favor lung edema formation. Another factor contributing to impaired gas exchange during non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema relates to the disruption of the alveolar epithelial barrier, such as occurs when lung interstitial space pressure is severe enough to disrupt tight junctions or when direct inflammatory or toxic injury to the epithelial lining of the alveoli occurs. Damaged alveolar epithelium has a reduced capacity for the active transport of fluid from the alveolar space into the lung interstitial space and causes impaired surfactant production 
resulting in reduced surface activity, favoring alveolar collapse during normal tidal breathing. Examples of direct injury to the alveolar epithelium include gastric aspiration or pneumonia. Conditions that promote acute lung capillary endothelial injury include systemic infections such as sepsis, severe burns, trauma, and other systemic inflammatory conditions. Injury to the lung capillary endothelium and or alveolar epithelium is the hallmark of acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome, which represent a spectrum of progressive non-cardiogenic lung injury associated with impaired gas exchange, shunting, ventilation perfusion mismatching, and reduced lung compliance causing increased work of breathing. It is important for care providers to quickly establish the cause of acute pulmonary edema such that appropriate therapy can be rapidly initiated to avoid serious, life-threatening complications. For instance, a patient with an acute rupture of their mitral valve chordae tendinae would benefit from afterload reduction via peripheral vasodilators and intraaortic balloon pump and immediate valve surgery, whereas a patient with acute respiratory distress syndrome related to sepsis would benefit from high concentrations of inspired oxygen, positive pressure ventilation, and early antimicrobials. Unfortunately, the cause of pulmonary edema can be difficult to establish in the critical care setting and requires a skilled clinician with appropriate diagnostic tools. Common clinical manifestations of pulmonary edema of any cause include the acute onset of dyspnea, anxiety, orthopnea, and in some cases, pink, blood-tinged, frothy sputum. On examination, patients have signs of increased sympathetic tone, such as tachycardia and hypertension, increased work of breathing, noted by the clinician in light of accessory muscle use and diaphoresis. Inspiratory crackles of the lung may be noted and peripheral cyanosis. Beyond the clinical features of pulmonary edema mentioned, historical information such as recent myocardial infarction, new onset cardiac arrhythmias, and exam findings of jugular venous pressures, an S3 gallop, new murmurs, and or dependent edema would favor the diagnosis of cardiogenic over non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Chest x-ray findings of cardiomegaly, a centralized pattern of interstitial and alveolar opacities, and or the presence of pleural effusions further support the diagnosis of cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Other supporting evidence includes an elevated brain natriuretic peptide or troponin, a marker of acute myocardial injury. However, these biomarkers lack diagnostic specificity. Cardiac imaging, particularly echocardiography, 
is very useful diagnostically and is shown to alter the management of a high percentage of critically ill patients presenting with acute pulmonary edema, acute lung injury, and acute respiratory distress syndrome encompass a spectrum of moderate to severe gas exchange abnormalities developing consequent to altered pulmonary vascular permeability, which is often further complicated by alveolar epithelial damage. The differential diagnosis of acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome is broadly categorized as a process causing direct versus indirect lung injury, the most common direct causes being severe pulmonary infections and gastric aspiration pneumonia, whereas severe infection such as sepsis, multiple transfusions, and trauma are common causes of indirect acute lung injury. Highly specific diagnostic tests for acute lung injury and acute Respiratory distress syndrome are lacking, and the differentiation of acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome from cardiogenic pulmonary edema largely relies on the clinical acumen of the critical care providers. Common causes of cardiogenic pulmonary edema include, but are not limited to, acute exacerbation of heart failure, acute valve dysfunction, arrhythmia, myocardial infarction, hypertensive crisis, fluid overload following aggressive volume resuscitation, ventricular septal rupture, and pericardial tamponade. Common causes of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema include, but are not limited to, direct lung injury due to pneumonia, gastric aspiration, toxic inhalation, and negative pressure-related injury as seen during strangulation. Indirect causes of lung injury are seen due to sepsis, trauma, pancreatitis, multiple blood transfusions, and brain injury. Let's talk a bit about other causes of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema considering their unique clinical presentations. Neurogenic pulmonary edema occurs following a significant central nervous system insult and is most often triggered by conditions associated with rapid and extreme elevations in intracranial pressure as well as in the setting of acute spinal cord injury, intracranial hemorrhage, or during status epilepticus. Sympathetic nervous system activation and catecholamine release are the primary mechanisms. The condition typically resolves within 48 hours of intracranial pressure normalization. Transfusion-related acute lung injury is an adverse response to the transfusion of blood products containing plasma characterized by the acute onset, usually within 6 hours, of dyspnea, hypoxemia, and bilateral pulmonary infiltrates that is mediated mechanistically by anti-HLA antibodies, neutrophil activation, and related endothelial barrier damage. 
the diagnosis of transfusion-related acute lung injury is made clinically and by the exclusion of cardiogenic edema or fluid overload. Treatment includes immediate discontinuation of any transfusing blood products and supportive care, which often requires intubation and mechanical ventilation. The duration of symptoms is typically limited 48 to 96 hours. Re-expansion pulmonary edema typically occurs within hours of draining a large pleural fusion in cases of sustained lung collapse, usually greater than 72 hours in duration. Associated symptoms range from mild to life-threatening, including dyspnea, cough with frothy sputum production, chest discomfort, and hypoxemic respiratory failure. A unilateral edema pattern of the re-expanded lung is typical on chest x-ray, but occasionally can occur in the contralateral lung or in both lungs. Most patients completely recover with supportive care within a few days. Preventative strategies include discontinuation of pleural fluid removal at the onset of any signs of chest discomfort, limiting volume removal to less than 1.5 liters, and avoidance of high negative pressure, keeping it less than 20 centimeters of water. Negative pressure pulmonary edema may be present in the immediate post-extubation period following the acute development of negative intrathoracic pressure generated during respiratory efforts against an obstructed airway. Negative pressure pulmonary edema occurs in less than 0.1% of all elective surgeries and is most common in young, healthy, and athletic patients during post-extubation laryngospasm. Other causes of negative pressure pulmonary edema include strangulation or hanging, severe sleep apnea, endotracheal tube occlusion, or epiglottitis. As with re-expansion pulmonary edema, the condition typically resolves within several days, unless, of course, if death was by hanging. Pulmonary artery catheters, the most definitive diagnostic modality concerning the differentiation of cardiogenic from non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, is no longer routinely used in light of frequent complications such as bleeding, pneumothorax, arrhythmias, infections, vessel trauma, and it is unreliable due to improper calibration or misinterpretation of the data. Thus, less invasive techniques have largely replaced pulmonary artery catheters for the routine evaluation of cardiogenic causes of pulmonary edema in the ICU. Transesophageal echocardiography is the most widely used tool for the evaluation of critically ill patients with suspected cardiac disease. In the context of pulmonary edema, transesophageal echocardiography can rapidly detect serious cardiac disease associated with elevated left ventricular filling pressures, 
including impaired left ventricular ejection fraction due to ischemic myocardial disease, typically causing regional wall motion abnormalities, or non-ischemic myocardial disease, typically causing diffuse wall motion abnormalities, significant valvular disease, or pericardial effusions causing tamponade physiology. The management of pulmonary edema and the therapeutic approaches are classified as either cardiovascular or pulmonary interventions. Cardiovascular interventions aim to reduce transcapillary fluid flux into the lung by reducing pulmonary capillary wedge pressures, loop diuretics, nitrates, or ultrafiltration in renal failure aim to reduce preload. Systemic vasodilating agents, including nitrates, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, and phosphodiesterase inhibitors reduce after load. Catecholamines, phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and an intraortic balloon pump will optimize cardiac contractility during impaired left ventricular function. Although most effective in the setting of cardiogenic pulmonary edema, pulmonary capillary hydrostatic pressure reduction can also mitigate the severity of pulmonary edema during non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Pulmonary interventions are designed to optimize gas exchange, particularly oxygenation by recruiting unstable, collapsed, or fluid-filled alveolar units primarily through the administration of positive end expiratory pressure. Positive end expiratory pressure, typically 5 to 15 centimeters of water, counteracts alveolar collapse during the ventilator cycle to enhance VQ matching and consequently oxygen diffusion from the alveoli to the blood. Alveolar stabilization also reduces the work of breathing by improving CO2 exchange and lung compliance. In addition to PEEP, it is often necessary to increase the fractional inspired oxygen concentration to maintain adequate oxygenation. PEEP may be provided by a tight-fitting, occlusive face mask in the form of continuous positive airway pressure or by non-invasive positive pressure ventilation wherein inspiratory support is added to PEEP, which is bi-level ventilation. Positive pressure ventilation further mitigates cardiogenic pulmonary edema by decreasing both preload and afterload. Early use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation for respiratory distress in cardiogenic pulmonary edema should be strongly considered as it provides support while awaiting the benefits of the aforementioned medical interventions. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation has been shown to reduce both the need for endotracheal intubation and early mortality, as well as decrease ICU length of stay. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is a helpful adjunct 
to medical therapy. However, it is unclear if bilevel non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is superior to continuous positive airway pressure in improving dyspnea, work of breathing, oxygenation, and PaCO2 retention. Endotracheal intubation and sedation may be required for patients with intolerably high work of breathing or altered mentation. When ventilator support is required in the setting of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, a lung protective ventilation strategy using lower tidal volumes of 6 ml per kilogram ideal body weight or less is highly recommended to minimize lung injury and pulmonary edema severity. Well, folks, this concludes the podcast Pulmonary DMA here and My Grand Rounds. I truly hope you're enjoying the podcast and it's somehow contributing to your patient care at the bedside. If you're listening at Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate and write a review. Sources for this podcast include the ICU book, 4th edition, textbook of critical care, 7th edition, up to date, and of course, my greater than two decades of clinical and didactic experience.